This is the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm Howard Jacobson of plantyourself.com. Two quick favors today before we get started. First of all, if you like this podcast and you haven't yet left a review on iTunes, it's remarkable how much those little things help us spread the word. And newer reviews seem to carry more weight than older ones, so we can't rest on our laurels here. So would you take a minute and go to plantyourself.com slash iTunes, and then click the reviews tab and tell the world what you think of the Plant Yourself podcast. Thanks so much. Second, my buddy Josh Lajani has applied to be on the cover of Runner's World magazine to represent the plant-based community. So if you don't know his story, Josh weighed over 400 pounds, he was miserable, and he's transformed himself in just a few years into a beast of an ultra runner through sweat and a whole food plant-based diet. And Josh and I are working together on a book and a long-form podcast together, and it would be cool beans if he made the cover. And that's where you come in. Because the first hurdle in the selection process is to collect a ton of online votes. Josh is now hanging on to the leaderboard, but he's near the bottom, and he needs a lot of votes over the next few weeks to move on to the next hurdle. So would you go to plantyourself.com slash gojosh, one word, G-O-J-O-S-H, plantyourself.com slash gojosh and cast your vote. Just click the green vote button. You don't need to sign in or give them your email or your firstborn or anything like that. And you can vote every 24 hours. So feel free to drop a reminder onto your calendar. Thanks a million. And now on to today's show. My guest, Glenn Merzer, is a co-author for a bunch of really good and really important plant-based books, including Mad Cowboy and No More Bull by Howard Lyman, Unprocessed by Chef AJ, Food Over Medicine by Pam Popper, and Better Than Vegan by Del Struth. He's also the proud author of his very own novel, Oh Beware, Howard of Jealousy. It is the green-eyed monster that doth mock the tofu it feeds on, about a vegan congressman who runs for president. In our conversation, he shares his journey, we swap stories of plant-based co-authorship, and we talk about his strong political views related to fixing our broken healthcare system and our broken health. So, without further ado, Glenn Merzer, welcome to the Plant Yourself Podcast. Thank you. Good to be with you. I'm looking forward to this uh, mentoring session. As, uh, you've, you've been doing some of the things that I've been doing in the plant-based world, helping people uh, birth their books, both uh, personal stories and plant-based stories. And I think you're, you're probably um, 10 years farther down the line than I am. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to, to hearing some of your war stories. Well, maybe you can mentor me on how to get a bestseller, but I'm happy to <laughs> Tell you anything uh, I can tell you. <laughs> I, I I think that's uh, well. I don't I don't want to go into the publishing secrets, but I, I think there's a lot of books that are bestsellers that <laughs> it uh, it does it doesn't mean what you think it means. All right. So uh, I'm not I'm not uh, I'm not placing this call for my yacht. Let's put it that way. <laughs> so um, let's let's start with kind of your professional. Journey. You're you're a writer, a, a screenwriter, a book writer. Tell me how how all that uh, came to be. 
Well, um, I, uh, at college, I went to a hippy-dippy school called New College in Sarasota, Florida, and I decided the day I arrived that I was going to be a playwright. I have no idea why, but uh, I just decided right away that I would be a playwright. And um, uh, after graduating from college, I became a stand-up comic in San Francisco. Huh. I did that, did that for a little while, but I couldn't stand the smoky nightclubs. So I uh, then decided to uh, continue my would-be career as a playwright, and I went to Indiana University in a playwriting program. And I continued writing plays all through my 20s. And uh, finally, one of my plays won me a prize, and the prize was to come to Hollywood and write the stupidest sitcom in Hollywood. <laughs> so I came to Hollywood, and I got into the Writers Guild, and the next thing I knew, I found myself writing TV shows, mainly sitcoms, for the next 10 years. So my background was as a writer, uh, and mainly a comedy writer. Uh, along the way, I got introduced to Howard Lyman, and... Um, I had been a vegetarian from the time I was 17, so I had gone to some vegetarian events, and I had met a woman there named Mar Nealon who introduced me to Howard. And um, Howard pitched the idea of a, a, a movie based on his journey, and his journey was going from being a fourth-generation cattle rancher to being a vegan and an animal rights activist. And uh, I knew something about his story anyway, and I was, uh, he's got a fabulous story, and he's a fabulous guy, and, and I would, uh, you know, I would have loved to see his story dramatized, but as I thought about it, I couldn't figure out how I would write the climax of the movie when in the third act he, he orders the, um, the, the rice and the steamed vegetables. Yeah. You know, it, it, I, I, I couldn't see how to write it as a, as a as a screenplay, so I politely declined. And then uh, Mar, the woman who introduced us, said, "Well, then, how about a book?" And I thought, "Well, if, if Howard's open to that, I could try helping him write a book, you know, because I could write about the environment, and I could write about heart disease, and I could write about things that don't require a dramatic climax." So Howard was open to it, and together we did the book Mad Cowboy, and uh, the book has done quite well over the years, and uh, I'm proud of it, and I think Howard's proud of it, and uh, that led to other books. So I found myself uh, becoming mainly a co-author of uh, books advocating the plant-based diet. Hmm. Wow, there's so much in there that I want to unpack. The, the first thing is, like, being a stand-up in San Francisco. Yeah. All right, so you you went to your hippy-dippy college. You wanted to become a playwright, and you, I guess you're naturally funny. Um, like, what's what made you think you could do stand-up? Like, that's that's a totally kind of different style of writing than um, than you know a dialogue in a play, isn't it? Uh, yes, it is, and of course, it's it's also performing. Uh, and um, I can only say that I've I always, you know, in high school and on, I was always uh, entertaining from time to time people with, with uh, you know, making people laugh. And, and I, I had already sensed, even though I was 
not yet an accomplished playwright and and um and uh, had a lot to learn about writing plays but i was already sensing that as a playwright i was fairly powerless if i i could knock myself out for a year writing a play and then what then i have to mail it into theaters uh, or, or try to mail it into agents to get an agent and then have the agent mail it into theaters, and then you have to hope that some literary manager at a theater actually reads it, and then if he or she likes it, passes it along to the artistic director, who isn't going to do it anyway because he or she isn't looking to produce any new plays. You know, it's such a, it's such a long shot to get a play produced, and it's such a long, difficult process. Whereas if you're a stand-up comic, if there's a nightclub that gets people <laughs> to come in for whatever reason, to drink or to laugh, and they let you on stage, then there's no there's no filter between you and the audience. If you could make the audience laugh, then uh, you get you move on to the next gig. So um, it just felt more um, accessible to me. Uh, an easier way to get in front of people, to get my words in front of people, is to jump on stage than to knock myself out writing a play and then sending it in the mail off to someone I don't know. What, what was your style and content uh, when you were doing stand-up? I was uh, not as good as Jerry Seinfeld. <laughs> but that style, you know, the you know, kind of straight New York stand-up comedy. I couldn't do funny voices and make funny faces or any of that. So uh, kind of in in the mold of a Jerry Seinfeld or a Bill Maher, but just not as not as talented. Uh huh. Um, but I'm 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 guessing that that kind of outlook on life has helped you in in many other situations where where you need to find something unusual to find a different angle to find something ironic um well uh you know i am who i am i have my my take on the world and you know it uh, i was able to make audiences laugh and to to do fairly well i used to say that uh that in san francisco there were three levels of comics at the time that i was there which was 1980 and the early 80s um, uh, there were the top comics in town, like Dana Carvey, uh, who were the headliners. And then there were a lot of uh, um, uh, open micers who didn't get paid but came to the open mics to try out material. And then the middle uh, level in San Francisco at that time consisted of me. Hmm. I emptied the open mics. So I would get fifteen, twenty dollars, and I would I would bring on the open micers. <laughs> so uh, you know, I, I would occasionally open up for one of the headliners, like Dana Carvey, uh, and uh, that was that was my career at that time. But I was only able to do it for about two years because I couldn't take the cigarette smoke; it was just awful. Hmm. So if it was if it was now, you might uh, you might still be doing it. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. I might be a failed comic to this day. Well, we'd, we'd be having a very different conversation. Yeah. So you said you went vegetarian when you were 17. How come? Uh, there was heart disease in my family. Uh, in my father's side of the family, uh, all the men seemed to die at about 55, 56. And... Um, 
and I never knew my grandparents. They were dead before I was born or when I was very young. Uh, and uh, when I was a teenager, my mother's two brothers, one was in his 50s and one was in his 40s, they died of heart attacks. So I realized that uh, if I ate the way these people in my family ate, I would be middle-aged at 25. And uh, it, it didn't, re- I, you know, I, I don't remember where and how I learned that the problem was meat, but it seemed obvious to me. I remember it just always seeming obvious to me. I remember also hearing the comedian Dick Gregory hmm. talk about being a vegetarian. And um, it was just clear to me that it was the meat. So I gave up meat, and I uh, and my mother, who was in her early 50s at the time, I was 17, my mother was 54 or so, uh, she would get terrible uh, angina pains when she would just go up the staircase, just go up six steps, and she would grab her heart and have terrible pains. And I said, "My, I'm stopping e- eating meat. You've got to stop, too. This is going to kill you. So she didn't go all the way vegetarian, but she went scaled. She stopped eating red meat. She hardly had any uh, chicken, and she scaled way back. And next month she has her 97th birthday. So, so wow. it works. <laughs> so you, when, what, roughly what year was it when you were 17? Uh, 1973. 1973. So that's a really weird takeaway for a 17-year-old to, to look at a family history of heart disease in 1973 and go, it's the diet as opposed to it's my fate or it's my genes. Like I'm, I'm, ha- I'm, ha- I'm having trouble imagining the kind of you know, leap or influence that would have, that would have led you to that. Was it, you know, was sort of part of a, like a proto hippie thing. You, you mentioned a hippie tippy college. It was like, it was like, well, this was, this was of course before I went to college. You know, it's interesting that you say that I, I can't remember now what I had read or heard or, or simply intuited but, you know, you look at a hamburger, it looks like a heart attack. I mean, <laughs> you know, it's, it's this fatty thing. You know, it's, it, it, it's hard to imagine broccoli clogging your arteries. It's very easy to imagine a cheeseburger clogging, clogging your arteries. It's very easy to imagine butter clogging your arteries. Um, so, um, you know, and again, I heard Dick Gregory speak, and he was a hero of mine. You know, Dick Gregory had fasted against the war in Vietnam, and I was just astonished because he went something like two years or more without solid food. And I would have thought that that, that couldn't be done, that he would have died. He was just having water and fruit juices. Uh, and I heard him speak when he was about 96 pounds. He came to my town of Belmore on Long Island and spoke, and um, and he was just full of energy, and he was running six miles a day. I still have never run six miles. He was running six miles a day and without eating food. And he talked about how uh, how you know eating meat was a mistake and was unhealthy. And so clearly he was an influence. Um, and then America finally got out of Vietnam, 
and he held a press conference to announce the end of his fast. And and he was asked, Mr. Gregory, would you fast again if America got involved in another Vietnam? And he said, I wouldn't fast again if they were fighting in my living room. <laughs> so, uh, you know, that a guy did something that heroic and that brave and that terrific and then ended it with humility and self-deprecation, you know, he, he was just just an astro- extraordinary figure. <laughs> so when when you met Howard Lyman, was your, your main um, orientation towards vegetarianism was your own personal health, or had you had you expanded it to other issues? Um, it was mainly health, but I um, was learning more about the environment and how uh, animal agriculture was destroying the planet. So I, by the time I met Howard, I knew something about that, though I learned a lot more from Howard. Um, I had not yet... Um, been very uh, up on the information about animal rights. You know, I simply, my attitude on animal rights when at the time was that um, I tried not to judge it as being morally wrong what we did to animals. I just found it personally, emotionally upsetting. You know, so I would, I would I wouldn't say to people who ate meat, you know, you're, you, look how you're killing these living, feeling creatures. I would just look at a slaughterhouse and, and find it emotionally upsetting to me, so I didn't want to participate in that. Um, you know, now I feel more strongly that, it, you know, we really are treating animals very cruelly. Uh, and so uh, I, I, I feel a little more judgment now on that issue than I did then. Um, but I still, when I try to persuade people to uh, go on a plant-based diet, I, I still tend more towards the arguments on health and on the environment because it's it's difficult to, if somebody doesn't feel it, if they think of chickens and pigs as just food animals and they don't care about their suffering, then I, I don't know how to make them care. You know, I, uh, there are maybe other writers and other leaders of the movement who do a better job of that than I do, but um, I, I've always seen it as my role to try to make people understand what eating meat does to your health and to make them understand what raising uh, animals for food does to the environment, and I, and I let other great spokesmen like John Robbins uh, make more of the case of of how cruel it is to the animals. Mm. I, I spoke to John a couple times on this podcast, and one one of the things I wanted to know because his book Diet for New America changed my life, and mm-hmm. and it was largely the health stuff. And you, so you were writing. Um, Mad Cowboy with Howard Lyman around 2000. Is that right? Uh, 96 to 98. Oh. It was finished in 98, yeah. So there wasn't, I mean, I'm amazed when I look at like the last 10, 15 years, or even the last five years, in terms of the research that's come out in favor of a plant-based diet, like what was there back then in the mid-90s 
that well, was, it was compelling enough besides your personal experience? Well, there, are, there have been plenty of studies. I mean, John pointed it out in Diet for a New America. There is a wealth of studies of, uh, of uh, the relationship between uh, saturated fat and cholesterol and heart disease, uh, between uh, uh, meat diets and colon cancer, uh, you know, uh, greater longevity in vegetarian populations. Uh, there was a wealth of studies on a lot of those issues then. I think we know more now than we did then about inflammation uh, and, uh, and, and, uh, and about antioxidants and, and cancer. But, uh, you know, heart disease, there, there was a lot of information. There was even a study, I think, in the 1930s of uh, the relationship between fat and diabetes. And it's a study that, you know, people get trained to be doctors today and they still don't, they still don't know. They still don't know, and they're, they're, they're training to be medical doctors, and they do not understand the relationship between fat, uh, fat in the blood, and, and diabetes. And, uh, you know, we have an epidemic of diabetes in the country, and they don't know basic science. That's true. So what, what was it like working with Howard? I've, I've met him. He's larger than life. Um, what, was, what was the process like of, of doing this well, first nonfiction collaboration? Yeah, uh, Howard's a great guy, and he made himself available to me uh, at all hours. And, uh, you know, he answered all my questions, and, and he, um, uh, you know, was very open about all his experience and very honest about it. Uh, so it was a good working relationship. Um, and I had a good deal of freedom to try to shape the book in a way that made sense to me, you know, when working with the publisher, Simon & Schuster, and um, so uh, I think everybody was happy with it. Howard was happy with the process. I was happy with the process. And Simon and Schuster was was happy with the result. And and they got the lion's share of the uh, return from it. So um, uh, it was a it was a wonderful process. Now Howard at the time was, as I was writing it with him, he was um, uh, on trial with Oprah Winfrey. Uh, for uh, food disparagement, <laughs> you know, because he had talked about, on Oprah's show about the fact that we were chopping up cows and feeding them back to cows and that that posed the risk of mad cow disease. And Oprah said, well, then I won't eat another hamburger. And there were a bunch of cattlemen in Texas who seemed to feel that she didn't have a right to say that in America. And so they sued Oprah and Howard. And so Howard was in Amarillo, Texas, uh, as I was working on the book, uh, you know, defending himself from, uh, uh, you know, a multimillion-dollar lawsuit. Hmm. So were you worried at that point, or were you like, oh, this is the best story ever? I uh, I kept telling Howard, don't worry, there's no way they can uh, find you liable, you know, it's nonsense. But... You know, it was in Amarillo, Texas, in the heart of cattle country, and he had legitimate reason to be nervous. Um, but I, I 
felt pretty confident he would be uh, acquitted. Uh, I, I found, I shouldn't say acquitted, found not liable, and 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 he was. So, so like you, you kind of created the manuscript. There was no, there was no chapters already done, right? Correct. So that's Correct. that's very different from my experiences, where I've with people I've worked with, I've they've had a manuscript, and we're like, okay, what are we going to do with it? How are we going to craft it? Must be fun to uh, kind of have have a a blank slate. How, how did you how did did you think about the story, Howard's story, in terms of like genre or were you just like writing down the facts as they happened? Well, I think Howard and I discussed what would the chapters be, and certainly we wanted to tell some of the some of the biographical story from his life, how he grew up on an organic uh, dairy farm, and his transition. You know how he then uh, he had this he had a tumor in his spine, which is probably the result of all the pesticides he was using when he transitioned the farm into being a modern chemical feedlot operation and uh you know it, it's a it's a no win proposition you you have to bring in so many cattle that you have to uh, house them on cement in close quarters and then the cattle get sick and then you have to give them antibiotics and and uh, you have to spray the crops with pesticide and you know and uh it's you know it's just a it's just a doomed enterprise uh and so he got a tumor on his spine and he basically as he went in for an operation uh, uh made a deal as it were with the powers that be and said if i live through this I'm going to try to turn my operation organic and restore the land to what it was before I ruined it. Uh, he survived the operation well. He's, he uh, remained ambulatory. And, um, and he then tried to turn his operation organic, but he couldn't get a loan from the local bankers who were all in hock to the, to the chemical industry. They, they, they uh uh, poo-pooed the idea of, of trying to run an organic farm. And so he, uh, he got out of farming. He sold the farm, and he went to um, Washington, D.C. to be a lobbyist for small farmers. Um, so we wanted to tell his story, and then I wanted to also to get in all the, as much factual information as I could about health and then I wanted to get in as much factual in information as I could about how animal agriculture is destroying the planet. Um, uh, and then we got the idea, Howard and I, to have Howard return to Montana in the final chapter uh, to, to visit the, uh, the farm he grew up on and to visit his old friends and to see how things have changed. Mm. So once we had that idea, we had an ending for the book. So, sounds a little bit like Hero's Journey. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm familiar. Yeah, well, sort of like the, uh, you know, the, the, the hero faces the, the, you know, the challenges and then comes back to the world and brings, brings some knowledge, brings an elixir, brings a gift. Right. That's beautiful. 
So how, how did your life change after that book came out? Because it, it made a splash, right? I mean, people, people heard about this issue who had never heard about it before. You know, the book has done very well and, and garnered uh, some critical praise and so forth, but I can't say that it changed my life in terms of that uh, the phone was ringing off the hook with offers for me to uh, to write other books or, 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 or you know, uh, do a lot of uh, uh, interviews on television or anything like that. After all, Howard was the lead author, not me. And um, uh, so I thought it was going to be a one-off kind of thing. I was going to do that book and be proud of it and return to my plays and screenplays. And for the most part, that's what I did. But then when Mad Cow, when Mad Cow Disease came to America, as Howard and I had predicted it would in the book, we decided to do kind of a, um, an I told you so book, as it were, called No More Bull. And so it was something of an update of some of the issues that we talked about in Mad Cowboy. And we did that one again with Simon & Schuster. So then I had two books with Howard. Uh, and then um, a few years after, well, about five years or so after No More Bull, Chef AJ came to me, who is a chef in Los Angeles and a, uh, uh, and a speaker and a personality in the plant-based movement. And she had written a manuscript, as, as you said, Howard, uh, as your experience. She already had a, a manuscript, but she needed help with it. And so I helped her rewrite that manuscript, and that became our book, Unprocessed. Uh, and that book has done very well. Uh, and then I decided to do more books, uh, and I did a book with Pam Popper called Food Over Medicine. I did a book with with uh, Chef Del Schroff, who's uh, in Columbus, Ohio. We did a book called Better Than Vegan. Uh, I edited a book called The Happy Cow Cookbook. Um, and then I decided to uh, finally do a book by myself, and I wrote my novel, Off the Reservation, uh, which is the story of a vegan congressman who runs for president. Yeah, I, uh, I'm very excited to talk about that, both because of the book itself and because, like, yeah, like, I, I want to write my own book now. Mm -hmm. So to kind of to see you do that, that, that breakout was very inspiring. Um, so you finished Mad Cowboy. You kind of went back to your life doing screenplays and, and sitcoms, I guess. Yeah, and it was more... Uh, it, 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 more screenplays and stage plays because the sitcom career lasted from around 87 to 96. And then I guess in 96, I must have lost my talent and they stopped hiring me. <laughs> so when you went back to the screenplays and stage plays, did, were you like equally happy or did you feel like there was something, you know, missing by comparison to this, like, you know, passionate work of, of, sort of social and environmental criticism? Um, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm a comedy writer by, by nature and inclination. So when I'm writing screenplays to try to make people laugh, uh, I'm at home in, in my universe. Um, so I, 
again, when I initially wrote Mad Cowboy, I thought it was going to be a one-off thing, and I didn't think I uh, would be writing books again. Um, So I didn't miss it. Um, But what has happened is that since now I've uh, written all those other books, plus a new one with Benji Kurtz called The Plant Advantage, I now see myself as being a small part, a small player in the plant-based food movement. And uh, and now, instead of just being in the universe of comedy and comedy writers and, and, uh, and trying to make movies and put on plays, I feel myself part of this other universe of a movement to try to um, uh, to try to uh, bring some sanity to the American diet. Uh, so um, I'm uh, now I now I feel part of both worlds. Very cool. So, where AJ was your next book right after Howard? After the two books with Howard, my third book was with AJ. So what it doesn't. Is- this doesn't count a few published plays that I have. Uh-huh. So what, what, uh, what did you learn from AJ? Because, you know, she's definitely plant-based, vegan, um, ethical vegan, environmental vegan, health vegan. But, you know, when I encountered her stuff, it was like it was different than, like, just don't eat meat. What was well, that like? AJ is very – AJ is a is – a, real personality in the movement you know she could be and should be a tv personality um you know she's a she's a she's dynamic on the stage she entertains people she people enjoy her uh, they gravitate to her and she's very good at marketing um so um uh you know the, the book has continued to sell very well and she's just built up a following, and um, so I, you know, what what I think she brings to the table is is uh, the, uh, an ability to make the message fun. Uh, she also has a real concern for for helping people lose unwanted weight, and she herself lost a lot of unwanted weight. So she's a good spokesperson on that issue. Was she was she going through the process of losing that weight while you were working with her on the manuscript? Uh, yes, and and she and she hadn't yet succeeded. Frankly, it was uh, after we finished the book that she, I believe, gave up nuts, and for her that was what worked. Uh, was I think the largest contribution to her finally losing the weight was giving up nuts. Now I don't believe that everybody has to give up nuts. Um, but, um, it, you know, certainly nuts, eating nuts doesn't help you lose weight. <laughs> and uh, for AJ, it was the, the missing piece, I think, in terms of what she needed to do to, to get where she wanted to be. So did she call you afterwards and say, we got to rewrite the book and take out all the nuts? <laughs> no, she didn't. But, uh, but uh, you know, uh, maybe she'll do another book and, uh, and talk about that experience. I don't know. Then uh, did you you get connected to Dell through AJ? I got connected to Dell through Pam Popper. Okay. So Pam was Pam the next book. The Pam was the met- next. 
Pam was the next book. I, I had met Pam at a party, and we were talking nutrition, and she knows an awful lot about nutrition. And I thought to myself, you know, I could probably talk to her till midnight about nutrition. You know, we had met at six or seven in the evening at a fundraising party, and it was just such a good conversation. I thought, uh, you know, she makes nutrition interesting, and she knows a lot. I could just talk to her about it for hours. And then I thought, now, wait a minute, maybe that's an idea for a book, because every every book about nutrition tends to be a little dry, because it's hard to make, you know, writing about, you know, things like enzymes thrilling. Uh, you know, and my background initially was as a stand-up comic. It was all about entertaining the audience. And how do you entertain an audience, when, you know, when you're writing about uh, uh, enzymes? Uh, so, I, But talking with Pam was entertaining. It was an entertaining conversation. So I thought, well, maybe if what if we did a book on nutrition, but it's in dialogue instead of in 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 prose that that's you know uh, like a like a nutrition lecture so what if we had a fun conversation about nutrition just like we were having at the party so that was my idea i called pam up i pitched it to her and she liked the idea and that was the book we did we actually recorded phone conversations transcribed them and then i rewrote them to to structure it into a book Ah, because I, yeah, I was wondering about that because it really it really comes across as reading it like you did nothing, <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> which I which I I mean as a compliment. Like it just it just right. seems like these were real conversations. Somebody wrote them down, and you got to put your name on the cover. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was uh, I take it as a compliment because it's you know the the effort was made in making it look effortless, but there was a good deal of work involved. <laughs> And this this was with Ben Bella, which is also uh, right. you know, they they had published uh, the China Study, um, right. and I guess it was it was after uh, I worked with them on Hole. Were they were they cool with a a dialogue based book, or did they think it wasn't going to work? Uh, we did the book before I ever uh, spoke with uh, Ben Bella. Oh, okay. We wrote it as it were on spec, and then sent them sent them the manuscript. Very cool. So, in uh, I don't want to jump ahead too much, but I do want to get to to your novel. Um, there was there was a few pages in Off the Reservation that I felt I, I could hear Pam. <laughs> um, really? Yeah. Oh, ma- the mammogram stuff. Yeah, that that in particular. Uh huh. Um, so, was there? Were you there already, or you know, how, how how much influence has has Pam had on sort of your your thinking on broadening? the issues of health beyond just, uh, you know, plant-based food? Well, um, you know, I think I, I always was skeptical of mammograms, so I, I don't think that that was because of Pam, but certainly um, uh, a, a significant part of my book with Pam and uh, an important lesson to learn from Pam is how to use doctors and how to strategically avoid them when you can uh, because you know doctors can save your life if you're in a car accident and you need to be patched up and uh, and doctors can save your life if you have a brain tumor and you need surgery uh, and there are 
and doctors can save your life if you have melanoma and you need surgery. Um, but if you have a chronic condition, you know, like, uh, well, if you've made yourself fat, if you've given yourself diabetes, uh, if you uh, even have an autoimmune disease that uh, is often diet-related, uh, your cure probably isn't going to come from a doctor. It's going to come from changing your diet. Um, and uh, and doctors are, are, for the most part, not schooled in nutrition and, uh, and uh, you know, only have few arrows in their quiver, and most of them are made by drug companies. So, um, you know, what I... The, the emphasis with Fam, with Pam was on uh, understanding uh, what doctors can and can't do for you, and um, and certainly, um, in, as I wrote the novel, I wanted my candidate for president to make the point that health is more important than health insurance, and the and the the, the, the route to health is through diet. And uh, so, um, so I think I was there before I had ever met Pam. But I think Pam's emphasis on how to use or not use doctors, you know, may have uh, infiltrated my thinking a little bit. Gotcha. So, when when did you decide you wanted to write a novel, and when what what did you think you could do with a novel that you w- wouldn't be able to do with any other form? Well, I, the, the truth is I had actually written the screenplay first. I'd written a screenplay called Off the Reservation about a vegan congressman who decides to run for president. And um, failing for a year or two to get the movie made, I thought, well, what, maybe I could adapt this screenplay into a novel. And uh, having done so now, the novel, the screenplay is now considered by the Writers Guild to be an adaptation of the novel. <laughs> the, the screenplay has been optioned, and if it ever gets made, it will say adapted from the novel off the reservation by <laughs> Glenn Merson, even though it it was done in the reverse order. Um, so um, uh, I just felt that by turning it into a novel, maybe I could reach a new audience with it. And uh, and if the novel succeeded, that could only help the screenplay. Mm-hmm. I, I have to say, you know, the, the term off the reservation has, has been controversial in the last couple of weeks, I think, in the, mm-hmm. the presidential news cycle, right, that uh, Hillary Clinton was uh, accused of using it uh, in a derogatory fashion. Um, yeah, I thought she was just trying to publicize my book, but apparently not. Um, you know, it, it, to me, it seems like a case of political correctness. If if you uh, use the term beyond the pale, if you said to me, oh, Glenn, that idea is beyond the pale, and I said, well, boy, that's an anti-Semitic phrase. What are you, an anti-Semite? You would say, what? What are you talking about? But the origin of that phrase was apparently... Uh, the pale was some area in Russia or somewhere beyond which the Jews were not supposed to go. So if you say beyond the pale, nobody in the world who uses that phrase is using it in an anti-Semitic way, but that's apparently the original meaning. Um, Off the reservation means, metaphorically, out of bounds, uh, going where you're not 
supposed to go. Now, Native Americans live on reservations. That's what we call them. That's what Native Americans call them. That's uh, Nobody objects to the term reservation. That's where many Native Americans live. They live on reservations. They are, of course, uh, as American citizens, free to travel anywhere in the United States, or like anyone else. And um, and uh, if they uh, if you, if you're on a reservation and you go off the reservation, where have you gone? You've gotten off the reservation. Metaphorically, it meant you know going where in the past they weren't supposed to go. In the book, um, uh, in the book, uh, the the my hero has American blood, and he talks about how his great-grandmother bravely went off the reservation. And so it was a positive thing. It was a good thing. The, the, the connotation in the book of going off the reservation is entirely positive. It's, it's not saying, you know, going where you crazy people are not allowed to go. It's, it's meant as a positive, brave thing to go out of bounds. And metaphorically, my candidate is going out of bounds of what normal candidates say and do. So, uh, you know, off the reservation has an entirely positive context in my book. And it and every reference to Native Americans in the book is positive. So I, you know, I just can't uh, buy this political correctness that you can't use a phrase that's a literal phrase meaning off out of where people live the reservation right and you have one of one of his advisors is uh you know share, sharing various native american quotes uh as, right. as sort of guiding wisdom for the campaign all over right. the place exactly so one of the things that amazed me about the book is, and I, and I have to say, for, for me, it was like reading political porn. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, like, oh, like, by that. Like, I, like a fantasy. Like that some, uh-huh. And, and it's, it's so interesting. First of all, it's, it's, it predicted, this was written, in, it, it was it published in 2014, so I'm sure you were working on it for some period of months or years before then. In a right. lot of ways, it really predicted Bernie, like eerily. Well, at least in at least in one way, he's asked. You know, the candidate uh, says, "How are we going to get the money for this campaign?" And the answer is, "We're going to we're going to limit our donations to no more than twenty dollars." How do you run a presidential campaign with twenty dollars? You get five million donations, then you got a hundred million dollars. And that turns out to be almost exactly how Bernie Sanders has gotten his money. Uh, I think his average donation has been twenty-seven dollars. I know. If only you'd said twenty-seven, then then we'd be. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that in that way, it predicted Bernie. He's he's unlike Bernie Sanders in in several ways, though. And most importantly, in the, in the in. You know what brings us together to this conversation in health, because uh, uh, Bernie Sanders is all about the old school Democratic left uh, 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 concern to send more and more Americans to doctors. 
uh, he wants single-payer health care, and that's his big issue. And for to him, it's an outrage that we don't have free health insurance for everyone so everyone could go to doctors as often as they want, that it's a right that everybody should go to the doctor. He doesn't say a word about health. He talks about health insurance. And he certainly doesn't say a word against the dairies of Vermont that are making people sick and unhealthy. Um, so, um, you know, my guy, Gorgoni, talks about how health is more important than health insurance and, and uh, implies throughout the book that the route to health is by eating correctly. Uh, you know, I have nothing ide- – I'm a, I'm a left-wing Democrat, and I have nothing ideologically against single-payer systems like they – you know, government health insurance like they have in Canada. Uh, but I – you know, I don't really give a damn, frankly. One system or the other – you can have the – we have the private system in America with the health insurance companies. You have the public system in Canada. Either way, both in Canada and the United States, you have a lot of fat, sick people because they're eating dead animals. That's what I get agitated about. Um, you know, if we had single payer in the United States, we already can't pay for our Medicare. You know, it's uh, and I'm not against Medicare, of course, but the the costs are going through the roof. Imagine if we had Medicare for everybody. Then we won't be we won't have any money for education. We won't have any money for the environment. We won't have any money for job training. We won't have any money to do anything good with because we're going to spend all our taxpayer dollars on everybody going to the doctor because they're making themselves sick because they're eating meat and cheese. And and so, you know, I'm not going to get involved in, in the issue of, health insurance because it's a meaningless issue to me you know and also you know we have over 200,000 people a year killed by the medical system so if bernie had his way and we had medicare for all and everybody got to go to the doctors all the time well then maybe we would have 300,000 people killed a year by doctors it's not an unmitigated good to send people to doctors it just isn't um, and you know, if you want if you want to do something to help people's health, then end farm subsidies. That's a hundred billion dollar dollars a year. That, by the way, every Tea Party Republican votes for, though they're supposed to be against government spending. Every last one of them votes to spend a hundred billion dollars a year, which is mainly subsidizing animal agriculture to grow the very foods that are making Americans sick. So if we never had Obamacare, if we never had Medicare for all, and of course we don't, if we never had any so-called progressive solution to the health insurance problem, but we concentrated on health, and we did that with just one simple thing, by saving the government $100 billion a year and ending farm subsidies, That'll make the price of a cheeseburger go to 15 or $20, and that would do more for Americans' health than all these damn health insurance plans that I really don't care about. 
Yeah, I keep, you know, I, I adore Bernie in, in very many ways. And, and one thing that I keep, you know, I'll see his campaign will post something on Facebook about the pharmaceutical companies being so greedy. And I, I, I always want to be the first comment, like thinking like maybe they'll read this one to say, mm-hmm. like, you know, if, if we follow your logic that these, these pharmaceutical companies are greedy and they're breaking the law and they're colluding and, and these prescription drugs cost so much more in America than everywhere else, why don't we follow to the next step and say, well, you know what? You know where else they're being greedy and dishonest? It's in um, hyping the benefits and hiding the harms of their products. Like, you know, let's... Of, let's, of, which, pro- of which products? Of pharmaceutical drugs. Of pharmaceutical drugs, yeah, but what, what about how we, we, we uh, hype the benefits of milk, <laughs> you know? It, it, it's, you know, the, the drugs, of, so many of the drugs are a solution to the problem that we, to a problem that we wouldn't have if we weren't eating foods that aren't human food, you know? So, um, you know, we have all these drugs for diabetes. We don't need them if we stop eating milk and cheese and meat that are making us diabetic and soda pop, you know. So the, the solution is in the food. And if we start eating all the right foods, the drug company problem will go away because the drug companies will die because, you know, we won't need them anymore. The, the drug companies thrive on a sick population. So my emphasis is entirely on health. Let's just stop being the fattest, sickest population ever to walk the earth. Let's eat actual human food instead of dead animals and their lactation and products made from that and so much sugar. And then by eating human food, we don't have to worry about drug prices. We're not going to need the drugs. (laughs) I mean, you know, Bernie Sanders is buying the premise. The premise that, yeah, it's, it's natural that we have a, 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 a tremendously sick, fat population. It's natural that, of course, we have cattle ranches and dairies destroying the earth. Uh, and then he's saying, let's use all our government resources to, um, to um, a, a, attack all those problems in the most expensive way possible with drugs and so forth. He he doesn't realize he's part of the problem. They got dairies all over the state of Vermont. He's never spoken out against them. He doesn't realize where the problem is. The problem is with animal agriculture. The problem is with a, a government that is essentially in bed with the animal agriculture industry and, and you know, and is uh, recommending to Americans to eat some lean meat and things like that, all that nonsense. You know, we need to realize that we are born herbivores, and it's not natural to the human body to be eating dead animals, and it's what's making us sick and fat. And the solution is never going to be in going to the doctor. The solution is going to be to eat human food. Right. So... Your your novel is a work of fiction, so th- someone can say that in American politics and get away with it, right? Do you, do you see it? Do you see it possible um, as an actual prescription for for political change? You know, I mean, Hillary presumably has seen her husband 
um, nursed back to health by the power of plant foods and avoiding animal foods and processed foods. I, I don't hear anything from her, you know, uh, along the lines of let's get rid of meat and dairy and processed foods. You know, the, the guy on the other side sells steak. Um, is, do, you, do you think there's a place in American political discourse for taking on big animal ag and, and big pharma? Well, my novel was a challenge to see if that could be possible. I think it could be possible. I think it, you know, it, it, uh, it, it there, there is obvious political risks, risks in doing it. Um, but, you know, if you had said 15 years ago, uh, why not run for president and uh, proclaim that, that gay marriage is fine with you and you'd like to see all Americans have the same right to be married, gay or straight, you'd be told that's political suicide. The American people aren't going to support gay marriage. Well, now they do, 15 years later. So is it possible that 15 years from now there could be um, a growing consensus that animal agriculture is destroying the planet and we need to move towards a plant-based diet and that politicians could actually talk about it? It's possible. I, I don't know if we'll get there or not. I, I only know this, that we have to get there or we're doomed. You know, the, the planet can't take this anymore, what animal agriculture is doing to it. So, you know, Bernie Sanders talks all the time about you know, those climate-denying Republicans who don't realize that we have to fight climate change. But he doesn't realize, apparently, that the number one way to fight climate change would be to close down those dairy farms in Vermont and the cattle ranches across the country. And and that's the, that's the largest share of the problem. Right. So, so Although, I, you know, I would, I would say, like, the difference between the gay marriage issue and animal agriculture and, and pharmaceuticals is that there's no... There's no industry making trillions of dollars a year in opposing gay marriage, whereas there's a lot of vested interests. So maybe a first step is to uh, is to take politics back from big money, and then we can start to have those conversations. Um, maybe, maybe you know, I'm I'm uh, all in favor of of getting corrupt money out of politics. But, you know, interestingly, Donald Trump has gotten the Republican nomination without hardly spending a dime. Um, and uh, one of the cases he made to his supporters was, vote for me, I'm self-funded, and, uh, and so I'm not uh, beholden to the lobbyists and the special interests. Well, of course, uh, he uh, he may not be as rich as he says he is, but he scarcely funded his campaign at all. What he did mainly was get a lot of free media. Um, and so in an age in which it's possible to get a lot of free media uh, with the force of personality and with an intelligent use of social media, um, the big money isn't as as uh, crucial and isn't as destructive as it used to be. I mean, Jeb Bush had all the money in the world. Didn't seem to do him any good. Um, and uh, all 
those Republican candidates, what they raised and spent compared to what Trump spent, you know, they dwarfed him. So I don't know that that the the real issue is getting money out of politics, though I'd be happy to see um, Citizens United overturned. Um, I think the real issue is that we need to focus the attention of the populace on the real issues. Um, and, you know, again, I'll go back to health insurance. I watch MSNBC all the time. I'm a great fan of Rachel Maddow and Lawrence O'Donnell. They are, you know, brilliant journalists, and, and I learn a great deal from them every night. They're terrific. But they have never once on their shows or on any other show on MSNBC um, uh, allowed my perspective, and I'm not the only one in the movement who has this perspective, on the air about Obamacare. Uh, every time there's a discussion of health, uh, health insurance, you hear the same damn thing over and over again. Obamacare signed up, I don't know, 12 million new people now have, this is what they say, they, 12 million new people now have health care. I hear that all the time. They don't have health care. They have health insurance. It's a, it's a financial product. It's called health insurance. Health care is when you go to the doctor. Now, they were able to go to the doctor before, some, some of them maybe more often in an emergency room before rather than in a clinician's office. But um, what they have is a financial product. And I've had this financial product all my life. And what happens is you go to the doctor and you say, here's my health insurance card. And then you pay the doctor and you go home and you make the claim. And then you get a letter from the health insurance company saying, thank you, it goes towards your deductible. <laughs> you know, it's not such a wonderful thing. I've been afflicted with health insurance all my life. It's not such a wonderful, delightful thing. It, uh, you know, it's just this nuisance financial product that, um, you know, sometimes helps you certainly in a, in a catastrophic situation, it's, you'll, it'll save your life and save you from bankruptcy to have health insurance. It's nice to have health insurance. I recommend having health insurance, but it really isn't such a big deal. Health is a big deal. And, you know, um, they will say on MSNBC, 12 million people have now have health care and what what they really have is health insurance and the all the polls show that after years now of Obamacare it's unpopular in the country you know the approval ratings for people who approve of Obamacare is like uh, I don't know like 40 percent and people who disapprove of it is 50 percent I just saw a poll on President Obama, a Gallup poll, people who approve of President Obama, 53%, and people who disapprove of him, 43%. He's up 10, pos 10 points positive. He's done a lot for this country. He's been an eloquent and, um, and, um, and uh, honorable and committed progressive leader for this country, and he is popular in spite of his signature domestic achievement, which remains 10 points underwater and unpopular. And, and the law itself is a complex Rube Goldberg contraption 
to to try to fix a problem. There was a problem, and it was easy to fix. The problem was that since we have, for better or worse, a private system of health insurance, that means that we have profit-motivated companies that give out health insurance. And so if somebody had health insurance through work and they needed kidney dialysis or something and then they lost their job, why in the world would a private insurance company give somebody who needs kidney dialysis a health insurance policy that they're going to lose a lot of money on? So they were denying people. And that was, that was a, a moral abomination that people couldn't get health insurance in this country because they lost their job and, and they couldn't get covered and people were being denied. So there was a simple fix to that problem. And the simple fix was if we're going to have a system of private insurance for better or worse, if you're denied coverage for health reasons by underwriters, by private insurance companies, then the government should give you a policy, plain and simple. You, get, you send in your letter of declination from, from Anthem Blue Cross, you get a Medicare policy. Simple fix. Instead of that, instead of that simple fix, to solve that problem, we got Obamacare, and the idea of Obamacare is, okay, we're going to make, it, we're going to mandate everybody has to buy health insurance. Everybody must pay for a product from a private company, and if you don't pay for it, you're, you're going to have a fine, and we're going to overcharge the young and healthy people so that we can afford to pay for the old and sick. And we're going to take underwriting out of health insurance so the insurance companies have to give policies to everyone, no matter how much money they're going to lose on, on the old and the sick. And, and so we have this system, and then we're going to base it all. You get a subsidy based on your income, but not based on last year's income, based on next year's income. And if you don't know next year's income, well, then you guess what your next year's income will be. And if you're wrong, then you have to go back and refile, and then you, maybe you lose your subsidy in, in, in retrospect. And the whole system is such a Rube Goldberg contraption that no wonder Americans don't like it. It's it's just a very complex, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, o uh, overly complicated solution to a very simple problem. All they had to do was give Medicare policies to anyone who's denied health insurance. That would have solved that problem. Well, you know, the uh, we're very good in this country at blinding ourselves to the root cause of a problem. And at that, you know, once once you don't once you accept that sickness is natural, and drugs are the and surgeries are the way to treat that sickness, then it doesn't matter how like once you start with an incorrect assumption, it doesn't matter how ethical or compassionate or good you are, you're going to end up with a, a slew of unintended consequences because you haven't addressed the issue. Yeah. And what's happening now is the health insurance companies find that they're losing money. Well, no surprise. Now they have to give policies to the people on the kidney dialysis who are very expensive. So they're losing money. So what are they doing? So they're backing out of the exchanges. So what we're seeing is more and more health insurance companies back out of the exchanges. And, and then we're seeing health insurance rates go up. Uh, you know, I, I had friends who... Uh, you know, 
two years ago, they're in their 50s, and two years ago, their health insurance for the couple was like $400 and went up to $1,200. So a lot of health insurance rates are going way up. Um, You have uh, health insurance companies backing out of these exchanges. I I fear that the whole thing is going to implode, and when it implodes, the Republicans are going to celebrate and say, see, we told you this didn't work, and yet we could obamacare did some good things and we could have and we still can keep those good things and the good things are you know we need to find a way and obamacare gave us a complicated way but a way in which everybody has a right to a health insurance policy so if they get denied by a health you know the obamacare solution was don't let Take underwriting out of the equation and don't let health insurance companies deny anybody. I say the better way to do it is keep underwriting in the equation. Let the health insurance companies deny you a policy, and then you get a government policy. That solves that problem. And then by doing that, that saves the health insurance companies a lot of money, so then they can lower prices on everyone else. Now, a good part of Obamacare was it it limited the amount of profit health insurance companies can make. They have to pay out um, 80% of what they take in in claims. So when I say to you, if we could take the old and the, you know, take the sickest people off the health insurance companies' roles, let them deny them policies, then their savings they have to pass on under law they have to pass those savings on to customers. That would lower the price. So now the young and the healthy won't get overcharged, and more of them will get policies. So, um, you know, when Obama ran for president against Hillary, and I supported Obama, their one disagreement on domestic policy was on health insurance. And Hillary said she wanted to create a system like we have now with these complicated exchanges and mandates. And Obama said, we don't need a mandate. How are you going to enforce a mandate with a fine or prison sentence? And Hillary never answered the question. And then he got elected and he did her plan. Well, I would go back to the Obama plan from when he was a candidate, which is just lower prices. And the way you lower prices is you give a federal policy to anyone who's being denied by the health insurance companies a policy. And then when they get a Medicare policy, then that lowers prices, that that lowers costs for the health insurance industry, and they would have to lower prices then for everybody else. So that would be the nice, simple, elegant solution, and we don't need all the contraptions of Obamacare. And we don't need the mandate. We need to emphasize health and then forget about health insurance. Do you ever have the urge to, uh, to run for political office or maybe to, to find a, you know, to, to co-author a political campaign with, with ideas and speech writing? I, w- I would love to co-author a political campaign with ideas and speech writing. It's too, I'm too old to start a new career as a political candidate. I don't have any, uh, you know, I, I don't have any uh, political experience in office. I'm not qualified, I think, to run for any office. Uh, you know, I would, uh, I would have to start uh, at the at the bottom with, uh, you know, running for 
I don't know, a local city council or something, because I, I really think that people should have experience when they run for office. And so, uh, no, I'm too old to start a new uh, career as a politician, but I would gladly give my ideas to anyone qualified, and they could use what any, whatever of my ideas they wish. All right. So anyone listening to this is uh, good-looking, um, charismatic, <laughs> uh, has, has already a political resume, and um, doesn't have too many sex scandals. Um, yeah, I limit that to three. Okay. I'm not working for anyone with more than three sex scandals. That's that's judicious. I think yeah. I think that's a testament to your uh, to your political savvy, right there. Yeah. So, um, Glenn Merzer, a, a fascinating conversation covering a lot of topics. Um, I didn't I didn't know we were going to get into Obamacare to the extent that we did, but it's real it's really refreshing to uh, to hear. You know, a, a critique of politics that begins with the the cells of our body, and and is yep. not is not disconnected from biological reality. So uh, I hope I hope this is uh, this is useful to people. I'm sure I'm sure I I almost never get into politics of any kind in, in the podcast. So I'm sure there's going to be people on uh, on all sides of the spectrum who will be who will be challenged by this. I hope uh, I hope all those folks will uh, will comment uh, kindly and on the. Uh, the show notes page and uh what what's up for you next i'm uh, i'm i'm writing a stage play now in which i'm i'm taking on and i'm not going to tell you who it is but i'm taking on the vegans so um it's going to be me against this guy and um i um i would like to I hope I'm able to finish the play I hope it, it'll be good and then I hope I'll be able to get it produced I'm back to you know the original uh, difficulty I had when I was 20 years old how do you how do you get a play produced but if I can get it produced it's going to be uh, it's going to be a play that takes on a guy who I feel is is uh, one of the leading enemies of vegans in the world and um, and otherwise, seemingly a very charming guy. Huh. Well, I, everyone's now racking their brains to try to figure out who that will be. Will, will it be obvious from the play, or will it, will it be... Uh, I, 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 I think it will be, but it, it won't name him by name, so he won't be able to sue me. <laughs> you've, learned, you've learned from Howard Lyman, huh? Yeah. <laughs> All right, Glenn, thank you so much for taking the time today. Thank you so much, Howard. Take care. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Plant Yourself Podcast. Be sure to check out the show notes with links to all the books and everything else we talked about at plantyourself.com slash 159. If you're new to the show, you can catch up on 158 archived episodes over at plantyourself.com. And if you get the podcast but not the weekly email newsletter, get the over to plantyourself.com and sign up for it. I include links to original articles, I share re recent episodes of my weekly Tribe Well TV show, and I try to use proper grammar and avoid typos. If you're in the Detroit area, I'll be speaking on June 28th for the Plant-Based Nutrition Support Group, the largest such group in the country. So check out their website, pbnsg, plantbasednutritionsupportgroup.org, to find out more and buy tickets. Also, uh, my podcast interview with them is not up yet, but should be any day now. So if you go to their website, you click the uh, 
three lines, I used to call them hamburgers, but uh, obviously in this context I can't, the three lines, three horizontal lines in the top right, and then you'll see media, podcasts, and uh, any day now it should be up there. So big thanks to whoever invented uh, wicking t-shirts. As I'm learning how to run long distances, I understand the importance of not wearing wet cotton against your skin. Thanks also to Plant Yourself Podcast patrons, David Bizek, Jen Vilkanovsky, Tina Ahern, Tina Scharf, Christine Nielsen, Rachel Behrens, Melissa Cobb, Ellen Kennelly, Mary Jane Wheeler, Amanda Hatherley, Amy Good, Tammy Black, Barbara Whitney, Elizabeth Clifton, Dominic Marrow, Brittany Porter, Anthony Disson, Lynn McClellan, and Kim Harrison. There, I did them in reverse order today for your generous support of the podcast. If you would like to support the show, you can share this and other episodes on social media via email. You can, as I mentioned at the top, write a review on iTunes. That's plantyourself.com slash iTunes. That will flip you over to where you can find that review button and leave your review. And of course, you can become a patron. You can help uh, defray the costs of my time, of the equipment, of the hosting, and of the mortgage for the house in which my home studio and office is located. Next week, I talk with evolutionary psychologist Doug Lyle, who is co-author of The Pleasure Trap, and he's the director of research at True North Health Center. And we talk about The Pleasure Trap, and specifically, I wanted him to talk about the second part of The Pleasure Trap, which is avoiding pain, the human motivation to avoid pain. And I wanted to talk to him not only about pain avoidance, but also about seeking out and embracing pain. Because if the first part of the pleasure trap is we seek pleasure and that's getting us into trouble, then maybe avoiding pain is also getting us into some trouble. And I think you'll be fascinated and challenged by his views, as I was. In garden news, we've begun the summer battle with little beasties. Japanese beetles, stem borers, and various other hungry bugs are competing with us for the harvest. And I find the important thing here for me is to stay loving, stay calm, even as the most primal impulses arise within me to crush the competition to protect my future calories. That's it for this week. So as always, be well, my friends. <laughs>